Hi, I'm Commander Chris Hadfield, and you're listening to SpexCast, brought to you by RIT Space Exploration. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and today we have an interview with astronaut Chris Hadfield. TJ, Augie, Drew, Chris, and I had the opportunity to speak with Commander Hadfield via Skype just a few weeks ago. We talked to him about his experiences in space and asked him a few questions about the past, present, and future of space exploration. This is our final installment for our Specs Summer Series, and weekly episodes of SpexCast will resume in late August. We really enjoyed doing these interviews for you guys this summer, and we already have a few more lined up down the road. So we hope you enjoy. Quick heads up, I was in a loud place. There was background noise. I muted when I could. Hope it's not too distracting. Thanks. Good afternoon. How are you? Good. I'm great. How are you? Uh, <laughs> well. uh, my name is Phil. Uh, we met the other day. Um, I'm the director of outreach at, for RIT Space Exploration. And um, here in the call with us, we have our student director, TJ. Um, Hello. Uh, a specs member, uh, Chris. How you doing? Hello, Chris. Uh, I, the team lead for the high altitude balloon team, uh, Drew. Hello. Hello, Drew. You don't look high altitude, and you have an NBL shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, alumni uh, for RIT specs, Augie. Afternoon. Hello, Augie. Good afternoon. Nice, nice to see all of you face to face. This podcast, we, we talk about everything space exploration. Today, uh, we're hoping to talk to you um, about you know your experiences as a test pilot, as an astronaut, um, in the space industry in general. Hi, my name is uh, Chris Hadfield. Uh, I was a pilot, a fighter pilot, a test pilot. I was a colonel in the Air Force. I was an astronaut for 21 years, flew in space three times, space shuttle twice, Soyuz once. Russian Space Station, and then helped build and then commanded the International Space Station. Nice to be joining you. You visited Mir and the ISS, uh, a completely Russian-built space station, and then an international collaboration. What did you find different about each uh, space station from their design to how it was run, and what was the same? Uh, the big difference between Mir, which was the kind of the, the biggest and most uh, complete Russian space station or Soviet space station ever built, and the one that's up there right now, the International Space Station, the biggest difference is size and power. The, uh, the International Space Station has uh, far more solar arrays, so we generate way like 10 times, or I don't even know the right number, but a lot more electricity. And then the internal volume is huge. There's, there's a lot more space in the International Space Station. Mir would be like a small little addition onto the back of the International Station. But fundamentally, they're pretty similar. It's a bunch of pieces that all had to fit on a rocket. So each one you know, has to fit on a rail car or in the back of a space shuttle or on top of a Soyuz or Proton or something rocket. So that limits the length and the diameter of everything. And then once you get them up there, you got to bolt them all together. And then it's really a question of how many do you have and uh, how much power do they have. And the International Space Station is just bigger and had a lot more vehicles coming to it. But once you're on board, it's still the same sort of serene, quietly busy, uh, peaceful, weightless uh, laboratory of an environment. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a really enviable place to get to, no matter how hard it is to construct or travel. So on that note, 
um, in terms of space stations. Do you think the future of space stations and human habitation in space is going to be something modular, like those two space stations, or something more like Skylab? The real driver to uh, almost anything is um, is the reality of, of how all the pieces got there. I mean, you could make your house out of one solid piece of plastic, right? You could you could 3D print your house, but it would be really complicated. And it makes a lot more sense to build your house out of pieces that are all delivered. Some of them are prefab, because you might have a truck, but you can't have a prefab piece of your house that's 80 by 80, because it couldn't go down the road. It's exactly the same for a space station. Uh, the biggest piece can only be as big as the biggest delivery vehicle that brought it there. So it almost always has to be modular, unless we somehow completely reinvent rockets so that you could maybe put a little box of anti-gravity underneath something that you could build on Earth and then just lift it up into orbit. But that doesn't exist. So I think for the foreseeable future, space stations, whether they're orbiting the Earth or orbiting the moon or on the surface of the moon, orbiting Mars or on the surface of Mars, they're all going to go up one big lump at a time. When they get there, start bolting them together to make a, sort of a, a steadily increasing size of habitable volume in one of those places. Very cool. So <clears throat> along the same lines, um, but regarding spacecraft, um, as a test pilot, uh, would you feel comfortable riding aboard a vehicle that is fully autonomous and had no manual controls whatsoever, or maybe just a few, you know, abort kind of controls? And uh, do you think pilots themselves are going to be necessary in the future? Uh, well, it's a real trade-off of uh, risk versus benefit. Um, I feel completely comfortable on a moving sidewalk, which is an autonomous vehicle that moves me from one place to the other with no driver. But I look at it and I recognize the speeds aren't too high. If all the mechanism suddenly fails, it may knock me over, but it probably won't hurt me. Same thing with elevators. You know, they're, they're pretty much autonomous. Nobody's operating them. There are little trains in some airports in some places where you get on, there's no driver. They're automated. They go from place to place. But as the complexity goes, I mean, there are no truly autonomous, complicated vehicles yet. None. Not even, you know, a, a, a tricycle. You know, all of them right, to this point need some sort of human help. And we're talking about autonomous cars, but we're a long way from truly autonomous cars. Under specific applications, just like with a tram car or a moving sidewalk, an autonomous car works great. But but under the complexity of reality, it's, it's far more nuanced and difficult. And when you put in the third dimension, it gets even harder. So it's a real question of how much risk do you want to take versus the cost and the complexity of the thing you want to build. And when my dad was training to be an airline pilot in 1958, 59, everybody was telling him, oh, don't do that. Within 10 years, we won't have pilots in airplanes anymore. And here it is, 2016, and the minimum number of pilots you can have in any decent-sized airliner is two, just for safety. And when Sully Sullenberger took off out of New York and made all of those clever, unpredictable, but absolutely necessary human decisions to land his airplane in the Hudson, if there had been a computer in charge, all of those hundreds of people would have been killed. But because there was somebody on board, save the day. So it's a trade-off. So he asked me if I'd be comfortable. I'd want to see the moving a sidewalk. I'd want to see the tram car. I'd want to see what the risks are. Uh, right now, I'm not comfortable because I don't know what the risks are or what the benefits are. And just because some engineer thinks it's going to be simpler doesn't necessarily mean 
that it's overall better or uh, or, cap or more capable or, in fact, safer. So right now, a lot of fighter planes are fly-by-wire. Is there a very big step between um, having hands off the controls and having the computer interpret a pilot's controls? Is it the decision-making that makes the difference between um, you being comfortable or not? Uh, well, all, all fly-by-wire means it's really kind of the opposite, right? It's fly-by computer. Um, when you pull back on the stick in a little simple airplane, it actually moves wires, and, and that moves the control surfaces. When I pull back on the stick in an F-18, it tells a computer this is what the pilot's doing, and so therefore, based on this speed and altitude and, and density and, and everything else, move the control surfaces this much. So from the pilot's point of view, it's sort of transparent. The airplane is an extension of yourself doing what you're asking it to do. Um, if you automate that, then what's the point? Who are you automating it for? Uh, I mean, air, vehicles are serve different purposes. And uh, a fighter aircraft is there for rapid reaction and in um, sort of nuanced flexibility in doing what it needs to do. It's not a drone. If a drone does it better, send a drone. But if you're in an environment where you have very complicated rules of the engagement or where there's a subtlety to what's happening or where it's a really difficult visual environment to be able to make a good conclusion in, then you probably want the, uh, the cunning and the reactive nature of the human mind. But, I mean, I, I'm an engineer and, and, a, and a pilot and an astronaut. Technology is what enables us to do almost everything. I'm all for it. But often the people that think automation is going to work are not the people who have actually seen the environment where, where they're designing it for. They, they make incorrect assumptions. And so it's going to be a balance. Eventually, of course, the automation will increase, and it ought to. But the point of doing it all is human. Robots don't care. Robots, you know, they can tell you what temperature it is, but they don't care what temperature it is. We're the only things that care. And therefore, it's our decision and, and our interpretation that, that at the end really matters. Very interesting. So uh, Boeing and SpaceX are both working on the next generation of American crewed vehicles. Uh, as a veteran of two shuttle launches and a Soyuz launch, uh, how do you compare these new vehicles of capsule design to what you flew on previously? You know, when you look back at early airplanes like the Wright Flyer, or what Blario flew across the English Channel, or what um, McCurdy flew at Bedeck in Canada. Um, those airplanes were ridiculous. They were stupid looking. They were a terrible design. They, I mean, you look at those early airplanes, and you're like, what are they thinking? The tails are the wrong side. And ugh, how dumb were they? Wing warping. What a stupid idea. It's really easy in retrospect to judge a design. But eventually, airplanes. We, we started seeing what, what is the actual natural shape for an airplane? What makes sense? And if you look at a Dreamliner, you know, the Boeing 787, that is one exquisitely designed airplane where they've traded off everything and done it millions and millions of times to come up with uh, basically 110 years of evolution in, in uh, aircraft design to come out with that at the other end. In spaceflight, we're still really early. We're still like Wright Brothers and Blario. You know, we're in the Montgolfier. We're just figuring it out. And we're still determining what is the natural shape for a spaceship. It's partially driven by engines. But 
the natural shape for a ship that launches through the atmosphere on a rocket and then comes back into the atmosphere using friction to slow down, the natural shape is a capsule. It's the logical shape. It's what we used initially, sort of. Um, it's what the Russians have used all along with a short experiment into Buran, which was like a shuttle knockoff. And it's what the Americans have used pretty much exclusively apart from shuttle. Shuttle was immensely capable, as was the right flyer. But but it had a lot of flaws. And we two crews died. We, we killed a lot of people with the space shuttle. And we lost two vehicles. And, and the cost of maintaining it was outlandish, partially because of the design of it. So uh, I think going back to an advanced uh, capsule shape, like SpaceX has been using with their Dragon capsule and soon with their with their crewed, you know, with people on board the Dragon, and then what Boeing's building as well, that's the natural shape for a spaceship, that at least one to come in and out of an atmosphere. Once you're in orbit, you, you can look like anything you want. But uh, but for an atmospheric entry vehicle, the capsules, the, the I, at least to this point, it's the natural evolved shape of a spaceship. Now, do you still see a place in lifted bodies? Uh, Dream Chaser didn't win a commercial crew contract, but they're smaller vehicles in the new round of commercial cargo, and they're working on development. Do you still f feel there's a place for winged vehicles in spaceflight? Well, there's a place for every vehicle if you have enough money. I mean, we, we could have a thousand different designs and be trying them all out. But the real question is, how many can you afford? And how purposeful can you be? You know, we could have cars that had 12 wheels and 11 and 10 and 9 and 3 and right down to 2. You could probably design a unicycle car. But people have pretty much settled on 4 because it's kind of the practical design. But that doesn't mean there's not a place for a three-wheeled car or a two-wheeled car. You know, it, it's just how how what's the most practical for the amount of money that you want to spend in the job you're trying to do. And winged vehicles, you only really need wings at landing, maybe a little bit for entry. So the rest of the time, they're just weight and aerodynamic drag and a thermal problem and a, uh, a damage problem. So uh, they have some benefits and some disadvantages. If you got unlimited money, let's build everything. But if you can only build one spaceship, uh, I wouldn't put wings on it. Awesome answer. Okay, so uh, NASA has plans to decommission the International Space Station in 2024. Which is no, a little less than a decade from now. No, they don't actually. No, the, the, the space station's designed till at least 2028, probably 2030. It's just the current level of political agreement only takes ah. us as far as 2024. But okay. no, nobody's planning to deorbit it in 2024. So 2028, 2030, which is a decade, yep. 12 years. So yep. just following those numbers, um, what are your opinions on a potential decommission of the International Space Station? Has it run its course and is it, is, is it ready to be decommissioned? And if so, uh, what do you think the future of space habitation holds for us? Uh, well, all machines eventually break and, and all equipment eventually wears out. And when you're building a spaceship, uh, you have to launch and leave, right? You launch something and you may not be able to get to that uh, joint or that pump or that fan for 20 years or 25 years. So when you design it, you have to say, what is the life I'm trying, how much grease am I gonna put in there? How good of bushings and bearings and how, how hard is steel and all the rest of it. And you have uh, a design life and a mean time between failure that you try and guess at. And when we originally designed the space station, we set 2028 and everything was sort of built to last till 2028. The first piece was launched in 98. So it'll be 30 years old. 
And I would bet none of you five guys is driving a 30-year-old car, at least not on a regular basis anyway. Um, you know, machinery gets old. And and uh, so when you ask if the space station is going to be ready to be commissioned, it sure isn't now. Parts of it are only a few months old. I mean, just got there. And and we work a little bit to keep everything running, but it's running great. You know, touch wood. It's doing a great job. So, But by 2024, 2028, 2030... Guaranteed, stuff's going to be breaking more often. It's going to become more less like an old car, an old house, old whatever, old body. It takes more maintenance, you know, and and you need to then put more time into fixing it until eventually, if you just extrapolate that, all we would ever do was fix the space station. We'd, we'd never do any science at all. But we want to run the 200 experiments on board. So you just kind of have to trade off crew time versus the time it takes to fix it. So you just kind of have to trade off crew time versus the time it takes to fix it. And at some point say, okay, just like the old car, you know, it's time to retire it and move on to something else. And uh, that estimate is, as you say, uh, a little over a decade away, probably. Um, I, I think it's worth mentioning that Russia and the United States both just signed a contract to extend the space station until at least 2024. It's pretty hard right now to find things Russia and the United States are agreeing to for at least a decade in the future. That's pretty symbolic as, as well as significant, I think. Um, but eventually, of course, space station will wear out just like everything. And then we'll do it like we'll do with it what we do with all big space equipment. We'll drive it into an uninhabited part of the world, just fire its engines so it falls down. Normally the South Pacific because you have almost no chance of hitting anything valuable, hitting anybody. Um but where to go next, I think was the last part of your question, Chris. What, what do we do next? And I think we'll have, we'll have learned enough from the space station to hopefully be able to turn Earth orbit over to commercial uh, usage. That's what Elon Musk is working on. It's what Boeing's working on. It's what Bigelow's working on. How can you build an infrastructure and enough knowledge and communication and safety that maybe you can start commercially financing access to low Earth orbit, just like the huge amount that was put into rail travel originally before it became privately profitable or uh, air travel. You know, there, there were huge amount invested through the First World War, Second World War, NACA, all of that stuff. till then it became profitable. Hopefully by 2028, 20, 2030, we'll be able to do that in low Earth orbit. And it'll free up the governments, the people that, that can afford to have some vision long term and not have to answer their shareholders to go further. And obviously, the next destination is the moon. It's only three days away. And we've just barely visited there, you know, six times. We, we've just we've just kicked around a little bit of dirt in a tiny little section uh, a generation ago. And it's a wonderful observatory of the Earth and a place to I would say. Uh, look at what we did in Antarctica for the last 110 years, and that's what we're going to do on the moon. Initially, we can just barely get there. Then we can maybe stay there for the good season, and then we can start to stay for maybe the whole winter. Until now, almost 100 of us live not just in Antarctica, but at the South Pole year-round, which would have been crazy not very long ago, but now we can do it. And it's teaching us about you know, the background radiation of the universe and the origins of, of time and the universe itself and Earth's history and Earth's climate. And we use Antarctica as a tremendous observatory and scientific station. I think that's what's going to happen on the moon for the next, whatever, I don't know, 50 years. It depends how fast we invent things. But to me, that's the logical progression. Probe everywhere, start settling on the space station, use it up until that vehicle's about done, and then go to the next um, 
lily pad in the pond, which is the moon. And then eventually we'll test and invent and know enough that we can go further, maybe to asteroids, maybe to uh, the moons of, um, of Mars, maybe even Mars itself. No big rush, but eventually we'll get there. Awesome. Thank do you. you. Think after there, do you think after um, we have the uh, capability of settling on the moon or, or elsewhere that there are place for space stations? Uh, they're, like right now, we're only doing science on the space station. Um, but if we're doing science on the moon or some other base, do you think there's still a, um, a purpose for purely like, orbiting uh, habitation? Well, it's sort of like saying, is there a place for laboratories? And most people would say, no, I don't work in a laboratory. What do laboratories do? Why don't we just have one? You know, most people, it's not part of their lives and they have no idea. But of course, there are thousands and thousands of laboratories operating on the surface of the world all the time. And the reason we have a laboratory normally is to control a set of conditions um, so that we can draw accurate scientific conclusions. And Earth orbit offers us an environment to do things that you can't do on the surface. So... Uh, part of that can be commercialized. But the cost of launch has been too high. You know, to try and do zero-G manufacturing, you can do some stuff up there you can't do on Earth. But if it costs too much, then no one's going to do it. It's not profitable. But what SpaceX has done recently with um, landing their first stage rocket, and they're planning to launch a used rocket in October. I went to the SpaceX plant last week and had a look at it. Those engines are sitting there. All they had to do was clean all the soot off them. You know, it's incredible. And so... Uh, as soon as they have done enough iterations, they're doing it really cleverly, that we can actually start reusing first-stage rockets, then a lot of business people are going to go, hey, two orders of magnitude cheaper? That appeals to me. I can suddenly start you know, using the environment up there to do whatever, grow crystals, uh, make ball bearings, uh, create things that you can't create on Earth. I mean, that's the time to open it up to free enterprise. Don't, don't let you know, engineers uh, from the military like me or, or government people dictate what this new environment should be used for. Let them take advantage of the opportunities and the capabilities that have been built by all of these years of investment. So my answer is, yeah, of course, th there will be. It might just be partially tourism. You know, some people want to go up there for a ride. I mean, what's the point of the Taj Mahal? Taj Mahal has no use at all. But it brings in a million people a year and a huge financial endeavor just so people can go look. And imagine how many people, if you can get the price down low enough, get Ryanair going to space or something, that people want to go have a look. You know, why not? So, so yeah, I, 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 uh, it's not up to the six of us to predict the market that's going to exist. Thank you very much. Uh, we have one last question, um, and this is actually mine. So um, I want to know what are key features of a spacesuit um, for you. When you were um, at the space station, you did some EVAs, and I read about uh, a mishap that happened where you ended up having to vent some oxygen to space, and that's like super scary. So in sci-fi, they always depict like the Martian or Interstellar these really form-fitting suits, um, but nowadays the suits are really bulky. So if I I would want a buffer between me and space, I, I was wondering what your thoughts would be. Uh, so, uh, to do a spacewalk, uh, you, it's really not a spacewalk, of course. You're basically going out alone into the universe in a one-person spaceship, is really what it is. It's not a suit. It's a one-person spaceship. And if you watch the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, you'll see Dave 
going outside and his looks like a, a little bubble and it's got some robot arms on the front and he sits there and looks out the window and it's got all the life support equipment in the but it's more like you know a little minivan but it's really that's a one-person spaceship but if you shrink that down to its absolute simplest you know down to uh just the suit that protects you then what you end up with is is a hull around your body that somehow keeps the pressure in and then a cooling system and an air purification system and a communication system and a propulsion system all of that has to somehow be part of your spacesuit and way down the list is comfort and fashion um, but when you're designing a spacesuit for a movie then way way up the list is comfort and fashion and they're not really keeping anybody alive at all so uh, hopefully the designs will continue to get better but the number one thing is keeping the astronaut alive and allowing them to do the job out there so really focusing on what parts of it like the gloves have to be very uh, ductile and give you a lot of tactility and the, and it has to be tough and redundant and simple and and all those other things so they're they are not comfortable they're bulky they make rear end look big but uh, but they are the only way that we can do spacewalks and spacewalking is the coolest thing that I can imagine. It's, it, I've done all those other things that we said in the introduction, but you, all five of you, would love to go for a spacewalk, and you wouldn't be thinking about that your suit didn't look like a movie while you were out there. Thank you. I can't thank you enough, Commander Hadfield. This has been an amazing experience. Um, thank you so Just much for your time. And Drew and, and Chris and Tom and Phil, thanks very much. It's nice to join all of you. Thanks for making this work so smoothly. That's a pretty cool technological achievement in itself. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye, guys. And that concludes episode 18, our interview with Chris Hatfield and our Specs Summer Series. We hope you had as much fun as we did making this. And don't forget to tell us what you think. We are open on Twitter at RIT Specs and by email at specscast at gmail.com. You can also find RIT Space Exploration on Facebook at facebook.com slash RIT Specs. And in the coming weeks, you can look forward to a new episode in September with Tori Bruno, President and CEO of the United Launch Alliance. And when Augie Allen comes back from the SmallSat conference in Utah, uh, he's going to tell us all about it, what he saw firsthand. It's going to be a lot of fun. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell. This has been SpecsCast. We'll see you next week.